That could have been like our ad break if we had ads. <laughs> That's true. We could have gone, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll discuss whatever we're going to talk about. And then an ad would have played. Yeah. Just like, hey, you guys like... Blue Apron. Soap? <laughs> Who would sponsor us, anyway? I feel like I very clearly picked soap. Soap? I mean, I could see that. Sure. Like a fancy soap? We Do you want to do the actual podcast? <laughs> um, what's it time for now, Aurora? Nope, just soap from here on out. <laughs> soap now. Yeah, Total Recall, what? Nope, washed away with soap. <laughs> Is that the title of our new soap-themed podcast? Yeah, obviously. <laughs> just thinking about birds having romantic relationships with humans make you feel dirty. <laughs> Can I recommend soap? We're not sponsored by a brand of soap. It's like the National Soap Council. <laughs> just the concept of soap. <laughs> Our ad would just be soap. It's a thing. <laughs> be aware. Be aware. It's a PSA. <laughs> Hi, everybody! Welcome to Tortal Recall, the podcast where we reread the Tamora Pierce books and yell about them. Today, we'll be talking about Trickster's Queen, the second book in the, uh, Daughter of the Lioness duology. Yeah, we're gonna start by introducing ourselves, and then Shelby thought of a very good question we're gonna answer. So, the question I came up with was um, if you were going to have this story told from a different perspective, from not the only white person in the rebellion, who would it be? But but wait, you also said it can't be Dove or Sarai, right? Oh yeah, I also outlawed Dove and Sarai, uh, which is maybe not fair. I felt they were obvious, but they're also not my answer, even when they're included, so. I mean, they very much would be my answer when- They'd be my answer. Included, so I think it's rude, but uh, we can do it your way. <laughs> Great, so, but that is our question. Um, so I'm Aurora, my pronouns are she, her, and my answer, I would- uh, want this to be from the POV of Ochobu, because it sounds like the chain mages are doing some super, 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 super cool stuff during this book. Yeah, that's a whole other, like, network that Allie doesn't know yeah. anything about. Yeah. Yeah, we hear nothing about it. And I mean, Allie gets, like, little bits and pieces about what the other, like, conspirators are doing. But I feel like she gets a lot less about the chain, and I just want to mm-hmm. know. Also, Ochobu's the bomb. I was thinking about that, too, that that would be cool. Because I've had a lot of, like, questions. I think the book does a pretty good job with them, but I was still like, what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> also, like, can you imagine? I mean, I know it's a YA book and the protagonist is going to be a teenager, but, like, can you imagine this book, but, like, the protagonist is an elderly woman? <laughs> oh, that would be so good. <laughs> yeah, it's true. We could get uh. her perspective of the crow romance. <laughs> oh, no. yeah, the crow who used to steal her laundry <laughs> she's like this is a chromance I don't vouch for <laughs> okay wait can I go is it my turn yeah go mm-hmm. okay um, my name is Abby and my pronouns are she her um, and I would like to see this book but narrated by Junai which is Ooh. probably a similar answer in some ways to Aurora's because Junai is Ochobu's granddaughter, but 
Um, also, she's got big protagonist energy, and yeah. that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm Grace. My pronouns are she, her. And um, this is a hard question. I actually honestly was thinking about in a very similar vein, but I feel like you guys took the two answers from that oh, <laughs> category sorry. of, like, I want to know more of what's going on with the chain. Um, so Right, well, I mean, and Ochobu and... Um, Ulasim and Junai are like this great like three generations of people who have been involved in this conspiracy for years and that's so cool. It's so cool. Um, so probably something in there is my real answer but you took it so I want to see this book narrated by the graveyard hag because I feel like it's time <laughs> that we get like a god narrated book and you know it'd be cool. It'd be a fun time. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, it would just be, like, her story of how, like, her cousin was up to some stuff, and, <laughs> and she decided to interfere with it. I'm telling you, it'd be great. It Amazing. would be great. Why isn't that the book? Okay, Shelby, you were really ready for your answer. My name is Shelby, and my pronouns are she, her, and um, my answer, unfortunately, I realized I have no idea how to pronounce her name. But I would uh, see it from the, the POV of Chenel? Chenel? That's actually the first one that I thought of before, I, and I switched my answer to deny, so I'm glad that I didn't steal your answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Abby. Uh, but just, like, the thing I love most about the books as they are is the idea that, like, we're in a very kind of behind-the-scenes position of Rebellion, that, like, it's not mm-hmm. from the General's POV. It's, like, you know, it's from somebody who's a little more in the background and so i think that like the the version of that that would be even better would be the the quartermaster like how much like (laughs) she gets to deal with like all of the weird stuff of the rebellion of like how do we get these weapons and like like i love stories like i love really standard stories told from from a different pov or, or a different part of the story and like we get all of these stories about war and rebellion and like the logistics of it are like never considered to be interesting enough but i think they'd be fascinating yeah good answer yeah and the you would still get a lot of the good like not you know you wouldn't get all of ali's spy stuff but like chenil clearly has her own stuff going on where she's like smuggling weapons through the kitchen and that's awesome (laughs) also i mean she is the cook so in a sense she's probably the center of like a bunch of different social networks. Because mm-hmm. that's just how kitchens work. Like, I bet the spies go and get food from her. Like, snacks. That's kind of their spy snacks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could yeah. write a different version of this book where Chenil is the spy master. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Now that we're talking about this, I'm wondering if this would be a good, uh, like, multi-point of view book. Um, mm-hmm. As cons- books about conspiracies often are. Yeah, that could be cool, but I also think it could be cool just for, like, you to get, like, everything through that, like, very specific lens, because you get, like, oh, and now these people are gonna go, like, launch a military maneuver, but they need to come to me first, and, like, (laughs) oh, now these people are gonna go, like, blow up some warehouses, but they need the blaze bomb for me, so I find out about it. Like, you'd get, like, a little bit of a peek into all of the different narratives, but, like, in a very unique way. Okay, so moving on, I think we start with uh, the section, ooh, don't remember the name, I think it's First Adventure. We talk about our background with the book. Who would like to start? Um, I mean, I was on the last episode, so my answer is pretty similar to what it was on that. 
or the last book, the last couple episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that I reread this book maybe really high up there in terms of, like, most out of any Tamara Pierce book. I'm not sure if it was actually the most, but, but like, definitely more than Trickster's choice. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I liked this one better, and I still do like it better, I think, so... Um, yeah, I don't know. It was just my, my favorite Tamara Pierce book full stop for, like, a really long time. And that's my background with it. I think I we talked about, I think we talked about this on the last TRR a little bit, that, like, these this book came out in, like, 2004, so it was maybe one of the ones that we read closest to, to it actually coming out. Hmm. And that was very much in, like, the target age range. Or at least for me, like, uh, yeah, it was very much, like, it was the the hot new one when I was reading Tamara Pierce books, and it was also like extremely targeted to me. <laughs> Wait, in two thousand four, you would have been like ten. Yeah, I was reading YA when I was like ten or eleven. Well, <laughs> I mean, I think I don't know if I read it the year that I came out. Also, like now, everyone on the podcast knows how old we are, which is very young. <laughs> <laughs> we can cut that out. No one needs to know. No, it's fine. Have we suggested that we're older? I feel like. People know that's... No, I think that a lot of people email us and stuff and say, like, oh, there's a clear generational difference here. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't think we've hidden this. No. Uh, Grace? Yeah, in 2004, I was seven. Um, <laughs> 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 um, but I know that we have listeners that are younger than that, too. Um, but, um, yeah, I liked this book. I think I agree with Abby that I probably reread it a lot, and I remember preferring it to trickster's choice like i would reread just trickster's queen um but i don't actually when i was rereading it i really enjoyed the experience and i think this was my experience rereading it when i was younger as well that there's still a lot of things where you're kind of it's pretty intricate so you can forget how everything fits together so it's a good reread because you're still surprised by it kind of like unspooling and the different things that relate to each other uh within the plot and all of that um there's a lot of good reveals, which I feel like makes for a good reread book. Yep. <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah, I liked this book. And I we talked about this on Turtle Recall Recall as well, but it does, um, I think part of why it really held up for me was that it feels a little bit, especially Trickster's Queen, I would say, even compared to Trickster's Choice, it feels like, ooh, this is like a, a grown-up book. This is a book for, like, <laughs> like teens, you know? Yeah, I think my answer is literally just a combination of those two. Like, this was one of my favorites <laughs> as a kid because it came out while I was reading them, um, and it was new and shiny and exciting, um, but also it... I still legitimately think it has, like, one of the most solid plots of any Tamara Pierce book. Like, for one, it has one, which (laughs) not all of them do. But also, like, as Grace said, it has all these twists, which I super did not see coming the first time. And every time I reread it, I'm always like, oh, wait, is this when the twist happens? Wait, is the twist happening now? I think that's a very fun part of the experience is, like, seeing it get set up. Yeah, and just feeling, like, the tension prior to the twist and, like, seeing all the foreshadowing and stuff. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Like, knowing that it's going to come. Ugh. Like, this one's good on a reread. Not all books are. Right. Yeah. Which is, because you always get, like, slightly more. Nah. I like it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I found this one, when I first read it, I, of course, it has all the key elements, right? <laughs> it, namely, heists. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. The most important element. And then I feel like. <laughs> 
I feel like the authors really hit her world-building stride. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And as Shelby said, it has a plot, and the combination of those um, <laughs> unbeatable, <makes it> really <laughs> engaging. Even if I'm sure when I first read it, I missed so much that right. was in here. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I mean, it's both a fun read and also very interesting because it is more complicated. Right. And I feel like the the testament to a good twist is that the book is still worth rereading or even like with the best twist that you finish it and then you turn around and you want to reread it just to be like, yeah, was that, definitely. could I see that coming? What, how, what, where is the <laughs> foreshadowing that I'm not going to see right away? And the testament to a bad twist is what it just makes you want to put down the book. Yeah. Before we talk, like, too much in depth about the twist, maybe we should say what it is. (laughs) So, like, obviously spoilers for this book. (laughs) I mean, there are multiple twists, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think. But should we, like, give a summary of the book is what I'm saying. (laughs) Yes, Abby is transitioning us into First Test, our section in which we give summaries and then talk about just summaries. I think that's it. Okay, to summarize this book, Allie, who, if you're listening to this podcast and don't know who she is, oh well, <laughs> um, returns to Rajmat with the Balatangs as the Raqqa Rebellion begins full force. They fight, they win, then Dove becomes queen. Um, so that's <laughs> the really brief summary. <laughs> to get like slightly more into it, Allie, uh, who's our point of view for the book coordinates kind of espionage for the movement um, of the rebellion while the other co-conspirators who should get more screen time <laughs> uh, work on overthrowing the throne and then other things do happen that are important that we'll talk about so like the gods get in a big old fight Sarai elopes what twist uh, regicide happens what twist and spies I love spies yeah I mean right those are the main things like a lot of it a lot of the plot is just sort of basic like okay, like, now we're gonna set up this element of the, like, revolution, and, like, now there's, like, riots happening over here, how can we capitalize on that, and, like, that type of stuff, and just, Mm. like, Allie's sort of day-to-day spy work of, like, how can she infiltrate various places, and, and, you know, that's sort of, like, a lot of the meat of the book, but the main, like, events that happen are, like, the Balatangs come back from, like, being basically exiled and are reintegrated into court, Dove joins the conspiracy, uh... The she joins both conspiracies. There are two. She joins the white people one and the Raka one. <laughs> Sarai flirts with a lot of noblemen. Uh, yeah, um, she does. Yeah, she does. Uh, and then at like so, earlier in the book than I thought it was gonna be. Honestly, like at the midpoint of the book, Sarai is has decided that um, that the Copper Isles are just like basically always gonna be awful, and she's also been offered. Um, the, the, the regents are trying to marry her to the king, who's, like, a five-year-old, and basically, like, use her as a prop to, like, uphold their regime because, uh, Dove and Sarai are very popular. So she elopes with a Karthaki guy who's also there. He seems fine. (laughs) Um, and so that's the big twist in, like, the middle of the book. Um, because then it's like, oh, who will be queen if not Sarai? Perhaps the one other candidate we have. (laughs) Um... Which, like, Kiprial really takes a long time to get to, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, the like, a lot of the Raka conspirators do, too. Um, but yeah, I mean, stuff. she's there, she's great. Um, she's 13, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then, uh, uh, after, the, after Sarai elopes, 
Um, the king's birthday happens. The king is again like five years old. He gets a ship for his birthday. They sail out on the ship along with um, the, one of the the uh, Dove and Sarai's younger half brother, um, who's also like four or something. Um, and the, then a big storm happens because the regents use this occasion to kill the king, and he dies. And Elzrin also dies. Um, and that's a big bummer for everyone. <laughs> um, and yeah, then basically shortly after that, the rebellion starts in earnest, and then there's a big fight that they win. Whoa. I think that's basically <laughs> it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, lots of other stuff happens. Yeah. It's, this book is 444 pages in my edition. That's a lot of pages. It's a long book. It was a long book, which I discovered when I went to start it yesterday. Um, <laughs> oh, no. But, yeah, that I think is a good summary. And those are the the twists that we mentioned in the first section. Mm-hmm. The fr- Our friends... The Darkings are back. That was a big twist for me because I forgot it and I was excited. I also <laughs> forgot that. <laughs> yeah, I forgot that they were there too, honestly. It's amazing. They're so cute. I love them. I like to watch their linguistic development. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And their little squishy bodies. <laughs> their little squishy bodies that turn themselves into jewelry <laughs> and dragons. Dragons. Yeah. Speaking of Darkings. This is taking us into our next section, wow, um, in which we discuss uh, plot and, no, world building, just world building. This is called isn't Run it, the Dominion Jewels. Isn't it plot and world building? I have plot things I want to say, or like book structure things that I want to say. Oh, great. We're going to go, we're going to talk about all the things. This is Run the Dominion Jewels. We're also <laughs> going to talk about plot. <laughs> cool. Yeah, so I mean, I just, like, mainly I just wanted to, to point out that this book has, like, a full recap. Like, it has, I think, a prologue yeah. that is mm-hmm. just, like, here's all the events of the previous book and also what they've been doing over the winter. And that's such a, like, period thing. Yeah. Like, you can tell yeah. that this book came out, like, around the time of, what, like, the fourth Harry or, or fifth Harry Potter book or something like that and not after the Harry Potter series ended. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like... It's a YA book. It's a long YA book, but it doesn't expect you to have read the book immediately before it. Right. Or it expects you to have read it, but not recently. It does not expect you to remember it. Like, right. Sure. I mean, but I think you could easily pick this up and just read that prologue and not have read the previous book and understand what was happening. I mean, you'd miss out on some of, well, I guess that's what a glossary's for. Right. I mean, it has a full list of all the yeah. characters, but also it has those, it has... Hang on, let me look at how many pages this is. It has it has four pages of just like here's what's going on, here's our like main characters and what they've been doing and what happened in the previous book. That's a lot. It is a lot, but I I think the other thing it speaks to besides maybe the idea that yeah, people might not have read the first one is this idea that like we have a move towards this kind of bingey media habit where like even mm-hmm. for books people often talk about like oh i'm gonna go reread the last one before this new one comes out right i'm like that wasn't a thing you needed to do in 2004 yeah. like they would tell you if you needed to remember something like right right i mean also these books were so long that a reread is a little trickier right yeah. but yeah i mean it really it really just powerfully reminded me of like 
uh, you know, the mid-range Harry Potter books where, uh-huh. like, you know, by the time you get to Harry Potter 4, you can't really jump onto the series there, but it still has, like, oh, here's Harry Potter. He's a boy wizard. For the past three years, he's attended Hogwarts. And, like, that's very much the vibe of, like, just let, we need a recap. We right. just do. Well, I think that's interesting, too, if you um, compare it, because obviously this is the... this book series is just so different from the other Tortal ones, and yeah. we've talked about that, obviously, but it's the first duology, it's the first really long books, and there we've never required a prologue before, you know? <laughs> Even, like, the third or fourth Alana book, the third or fourth Dana Cal book, I think you could pretty much just be like, well, I see what's going on here, um, and then Yeah, I mean, they, they also in. definitely had it built in, where, yeah. like, you know, the the beginnings of most of the Kel books would, like, describe Kel, say, like, where she is in her knighthood journey and stuff, but, like... Right. Yeah, you didn't need a whole prologue for and it. No, they never had, like, complex events, so it's just, like... hmm <laughs> Yeah. And, I mean, this prologue did serve to give us a little more, so it told us what they did post the death Right, because there is a little bit of a, a time skip also. Right. hmm And so it also sets Allie up as really the main... Spy master, but it, it was also going into everybody else too. So it wasn't just it was like giving us all of these hints of all of the other things that are happening that we don't really get to know because we're following Abby. Abby, I'm gonna keep doing it. Abby, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I did this during Tortal Recall Recall too. Um, Great. It, so it's not just about um. Yeah, it gives us all the stuff that everybody else is doing, which made me, like, super, like, want to know more about everything else, because they were just like, oh, and by the way, people are, like, killing uh, governors and tax collectors and stuff, and mm-hmm. I was like, I did, how? Yeah. And how are you just hiding entire villages of people? Right? Yeah, they go into the jungle, I guess. I mean, there's probably a lot of jungle compared to the size of the villages. I guess that's fair. Yes, True. Did yeah. you think the prologue was an effective way to introduce the book, Abby? Or uh, all of you, really? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was fine. Like, obviously, I read the previous one pretty recently, so I didn't, like, a lot of that information was not new to me. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't need to be reminded, but I thought it worked pretty well. I mean, it was it, it was very, like, exposition-heavy right at the top in, the way, in a way that I don't think you would see as much in modern YA, but, um, yeah, I mean, I didn't have a problem with it. Oh, I think it's funny that it reintroduced the fact that nobody eats bugs. Like, we need to know that, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a very important character trait. <laughs> we needed to know that he is a crow man. Yeah. <laughs> he's there. He's a crow. Um, anyway, Grace. I think it worked rel- relatively well for me for this kind of character in this kind of book because it's like, it's just kind of like an exposition heavy novel on the whole. Like, Allie keeps track of a lot of information. Um, you know, when she kind of talks about different situations, she is do it she's a tactician she's a spy master so she's doing like this is happening and this is happening and this is happening and this is kind of the way they fit together so to start it out like that i think kind of puts you in the mindset of like keeping track of those things as well which helps you follow the book yeah it definitely felt dated to me as well but i honestly like frequently with modern ya or non-ya books i often if i'm coming back to them after a while kind of get annoyed at them for not having one of these prologues because like they are useful if it's been three years since the last book came out and you don't remember it at all like right they yeah, are definitely so much easier than rereading the entire last book um especially for like people like me who have terrible memories for books they've read um, um, and as ya gets 
like commonly, and I don't know if this is the trend as much anymore, but for a while, YA fantasy was just getting longer and longer and longer. <laughs> so like yeah. that makes sense as a genre convention. <laughs> Right, and it is kind of nice to have it, like, plainly stated. Like, you don't have to read a scene where characters, like, allude to what happened or whatever. It just tells you, like, yep, the, this guy killed the Duke, and then they killed him, and then they spent the winter doing this and this and this. And, like, you know, you, you don't have to, like, figure it out. It just tells you, and then you, you're ready to go for the rest of the book. Right, because I think that's something that can make fantasy feel really difficult to read and clunky if it's clearly an exposition scene but no one will just tell you anything and it's just like people mm. being like well when i killed the duke it r- reminded me of the time that i also killed my second cousin the countess <laughs> and you're like what a natural sounding conversation <laughs> yeah i mean right, it's hard to do exposition in a world where like a lot the characters know a lot of stuff that you don't so sometimes it's nice to, like, give up on the artifice and just do it. Yeah. No, I, th- I think it's also, it, it's a good way to set up a structure for, uh, this book was very details heavy, you know, it, it yeah. took place over a very short period of time. Yeah. Um, and reading it, I was, this is the first time I really noticed this, but I was struck by, yeah, how slowly time is passing as you're reading yeah. this book. Yeah, yeah. Right, I mean, especially in comparison to, like, coming off of Kel, where it's, <laughs> like, four years per book. Right. And then this is, like, a couple months, and it's 400 pages long. If that, I don't even know how many, I don't know how many months it is, but. I think it actually worked well for this book in that it made it very, it was very cohesive. Right, I mean, it really covered, like, you know, every not if not every day, then it, like at the the longest it went was like week by week or right. something. Where like there wasn't a period of time it just skipped over. There was, um, y- you know, it it always let you know what everyone in the household was doing at any given time, so you were really able to like follow all the events and not just like a sort of vague arc of what was happening. Also, not like that entire year of Kel that apparently just got skipped. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> or the right. time in Alana where she's like, oh, and it had been a year, and you're like, had it. What? <laughs> or like, she hadn't spoke to her brother for so long, and you're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I think she learned, uh, Tamara Pierce, like, learned her lesson. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know when she figured out, what, or like, when people pointed out to her that she just skipped a year of Kel. <laughs> I don't know when she learned that, but in this book... There's very careful accounting of time. Right. Mm-hmm. Are we done with plot things? Because world building, <laughs> I like talking about it, that's all. Yeah, I guess I have, like, one other thing, which I don't know if it's a plot thing, but I also don't really know where else to talk about it. Do it! Yeah. Okay. There's just, there's a lot of, like, sort of sleight of hand in this book in terms of, like, who is okay with doing what murder and who <laughs> thinks what murder should happen. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think, like, it's doing a lot of work to make us like the characters that we're supposed to like and make them not condone child murder. <laughs> I mean, we know Allie would have done it. Right. Well, the thing is, like, Allie spent so much of the previous books, like, hand-wringing over, like, oh, are the Raka going to, like, massacre everyone? Is there going to be a lot of violence? But then in this book, she also spends time advocating for, like, sometimes you just gotta kill people. (laughs) So, I mean, she has, like, a very... She has a measured approach to killing, I guess. But then they also, like, they bring up the problem of, like, man, I guess we're gonna have to kill these kids. We don't want to, but we're gonna have to. But then the regents kill the kids, and it, like, plays directly into their hands, because I guess the, the... 
Cade King was actually very popular, even though his regime was not popular. So, like, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff going on there. We could unpack that more. I just kind of did a broad overview of all the killing opinions. (laughs) I know that the regents, like, are the direct cause of child murder, but it sounds like Kiprioth had a big hand in suggesting it, such that it kind of came from Allie's end of things anyway. Right, which is kind of, like, I don't know if we're just supposed to... Because um, I interpreted it simil- similarly that it was Kiprioth's kind of suggestion, I guess. Or I think that's stated flat out at some point. Um, but I mean, similarly to then be like, okay, well, it's coming from the same side that Ali's on. So there is like child murder, and are we just supposed to kind of like not go down that path, or are we supposed to take the the side of like sometimes bad things are necessary for the good of all, or whatever? I think it actually threads the needle there because it's pretty like specific about the fact that like Allie ends up seeing it as just like a gods are just different kind of thing like she mm-hmm. ends up seeing yeah. it as like well yeah he in the end kind of sees us as ants and that's why he can kill children <laughs> because like they're child ants so like sometimes you got to step on them right i yeah i think it's just it's interesting in the sense that it very successfully dodged the question of like would the human revolutionaries have killed these children right like yeah, we still no, don't know it just yeah. clearly doesn't want to go there it yeah. doesn't want to go there but it does want to ask the question at least four times yeah right <laughs> but i feel like it, it ends up being a pretty smart way for to avoid having to answer that question mm-hmm. about your protagonists and and the good guys but yeah, I think it's interesting, like, I mean, it's it's definitely true that Kiprioth was probably ultimately responsible for that choice, but it's still a choice that the regents made, I think, like, he just suggested it to them a lot, <laughs> but it was still something that they did because they believed it was in their interest, so it's interesting that they did it in a way where it was like, okay, the revolutionaries needed this to happen, didn't want to do it, the god did it for them, but also the regents did do it. <laughs> like, everyone's <laughs> so- got a hand in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, right, everyone was involved. <laughs> but, like, the, but Kiprioth gets away with it because it's like, oh, he's, he's a god, he's not, like, he doesn't have human values. But then you also get to use the same event for underlining the regents are really evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is like, it's doing a lot. There's a lot happening. It's really there. playing both sides of that. <laughs> yeah, so I, that's all I had to say about that. I just thought it was an interesting plot element. Yeah. I mean, I think it was super clever, right? I think. Yeah. Yeah. I also did have, like, a slightly related thought, which is one of the things I was thinking about today as I was reading this book is um, how distinct the tactics in this book are in terms of how people get murdered Mm -hmm. um, and how I kind of deeply appreciate that there isn't a lot of hand-wringing over them. Like, they, like, straight up, like, barricade the doors of barracks and then light them on fire in this book. Yeah. Like, that's a thing that happens. Um... And if that had happened in Alana... Right, which I guess Ellie is okay with because it's soldiers? Like, I think the idea is, like... The, the impression I got is it's a, like, A, like, this is, this is a rebellion. It's not a war between states. And as a result, like, mm-hmm. if you are going to rebel, like, you don't really have the luxury of quote-unquote ethical battle. Um, right. Not right. That yeah. really exists. Um, and so it just kind of, they just kind of dispense with those rules of honor that are super, super, super important to Alana. Right. Um, and, and even to Kel. 
Oh, um, I was just thinking about, and I think we've talked about this before, that those rules of honor make violence, like, state-sanctioned in this weird way and, mm. um, mm-hmm. like, allow us not to question war because it's a necessity. So by bringing it into rebellion, like, you know, Alan is a hero and obviously goes into battle where you're being committing violent acts against many, many people, but we normally see in the narrative just, like, she had this heroic duel against one man who she could have killed but didn't. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think it's very interesting to see this different view of violence, even though, like, the violence is not different, really. Yeah, no, that it distinctly reminded me of, um, I I know I've mentioned this series to you guys before because I remember uh, Aurora squealing about it, (laughs) um, but the Assassin Nun series... Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, nice. Which is a great, great YA series about assassin nuns who serve the god of death in medieval Brittany. Um, and in that series, also, like, the main characters are assassins and they go and they kill people from the shadows in quote unquote, like, not honorable combat. Um, and at some point in the first book, somebody, like, brings it up and it's like, isn't this morally sketchy? And the the character's like no no you kill people too (laughs) like Mm -hmm. you can't like you can't say that it's cool to kill people from the front and not cool from the back like that's not a right even though that like alana definitely believes that it's cool to kill people from the front and not from the back right Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and and specifically that series does kind of a similar thing to this one where it's like that order of assassin nuns does that in part because like that is how as women they are able to keep themselves safe and keep their country safe and like they don't necessarily have the luxury of being knights and doing it any other way so like it 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 was interesting to me to see that parallel in this book of once again you have like these yeah people who kind of don't have the quote-unquote luxury of honorable warfare which as grace says is kind of kind of just state control right yeah like you can only do the the honorable killing from the front if you have the backing of, like, the state or some large, powerful group, and these people don't have that. Right, so, like, if you are already in power, then you get to also have honor, but if you are not in power, then anything you do is dishonorable, like, or anything you do to to try and defend yourself. because it's not state-sanctioned, yeah, so might as well do it from the back. And I think it was helpful to kind of contextualize that, that Allie thought about it a few times, like, overtly Mm -hmm. discussed it a few times, um, such that younger people I don't know, people reading this book who have less of an idea of, like, wider framings of that can still address it in the same way. Mm -hmm. Being like, killing, still bad, but, like, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Yeah, no, I appreciated that, like, you know, same with, like, the the killing of the the king and that type of thing. Like, even though they kind of sidestepped that very neatly, they did talk about it a lot, so you could sort of figure out what everyone's point of view on it is, which is helpful. Yeah. World building. We're going to talk about world building. Okay, so uh, the I don't have any idea what order these episodes are coming out in. In Torchal Recall Recall, I went on a whole thing about Blood Oaths <laughs> um, and how I don't understand why like everybody doesn't use them all the time in this world because they are ridiculously overpowered. They're so um, OP. <laughs> mm. And in the first book, they're used like once for very minor characters and like basically as a deus ex machina to solve the problem. And then... I was like, why, why, why doesn't like the the Ritavon kings like make everybody swear blood oaths to them? They're like hugely paranoid, right? So why not? In this book, I got answers, but not 
satisfying ones. We got a lot more blood oaths, but still no explanation of why the Redfin Kings don't have people swear them all the time. Like, I mean, they did mention that at their official coronation, they were going to have people swear blood oaths to them. Right. Okay. So here's the thing. I said on Tortilla Recall Recall that this could be solved with like two sentences about like what the societal rules are about like when you're allowed mm-hmm. to make somebody swear blood oath. Like that would make sense. And I thought there were enough of examples in this book that maybe I could figure out what those rules were, but I could not. One possibility <laughs> was that it's just like a super big deal, so you do it super rarely, except that like no one seems terribly troubled about when they're making people swear blood oaths. I mean, you do also want to like make sure it's a situation where they won't end up having to break the oath, you know? Like the the um the regents probably wouldn't want people to swear blood oaths to the king because they were obviously thinking about deposing the king, you know? Right. Right, but that A does still doesn't explain the past kings. Sure. Um or like why it isn't just like why isn't it just standard practice that like this has to happen every coronation, right? Like that could like also have developed under the system. I thought maybe at one point I was like, maybe it's just like a class thing because there's some messed up class systems. Like maybe it's just that like, you know, it's considered very gauche to make um, like actual nobles swear it because most of the people who swear them are commoners. That doesn't work because at the very end they're like, okay, all of these nobles are going to swear to to Dove now. That's just the thing that's going to happen. I mean, I do think there might be cultural differences between, or like, yeah, there might be rules that Dove is not following that the, that the Ritavans did and vice versa. Right. Especially because we didn't see people swearing blood oaths willy nilly in like Tortal and Mm -hmm. I'm assuming like surrounding any other book places. And because the Lauren came from there, Mm -hmm. maybe they imported some of those customs as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Or maybe there's just different beliefs about blood oaths because we are seeing different groups interact with them. So if they're just like a thing in the world, then people can still have different beliefs about them. Because I think you run into that a lot with things like blood oaths, right? That, you know, I always think about, like, how do you word what you have someone swear? Because if I say, like, oh, I'll never be disloyal to you, but then at some point I want to lie and say something disloyal, would I Mm -hmm. die? (laughs) Like, how do you, like, make it work? And maybe groups just use them differently or believe different things about them. Yeah, no, that's the thing. It's like, as I said, I think there are, like, five different ways you could solve this problem in two sentences. She just didn't. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, right, we also get Dove at the end saying, like, okay, these people that I don't trust, I'm going to make them swear blood oaths, but, like, the people who I do trust, it's important to not do that so that they will continue to, like, have faith in me as a ruler. Aw. Stupid, but aw. Like, you see that specifically with with Tabor. Tabor. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of cool, like, blood oaths are ridiculous, and it's ridiculous that they exist in this universe. There is a lot of very cool magic in this book. There is such cool magic. Very cool. I really like the, um, like, there was a whole exchange where um, someone mentioned, like, Luaran magic, and Allie yeah. was like, what do you mean Luaran magic? It's just all the same magic. And they were like, not in the Copper Isles, it's not. <laughs> like, we have, we have developed two culturally distinct styles of magic, and that's cool. Mm-hmm. Mm, I think it was, it was Yasul, the mm-hmm. mage, and he could tell that the storm had, like, the flavor of Luaran magic, and that was just... Right. And the way that they craft things are apparently very different, such that the Raka do it in, like, a more... Like, a subtle way, yeah. mostly. Yeah. yeah like, they're, they've developed magic that they can hide from, you know, the oppressors, I guess. Nifty. Mm-hmm. Um, 
another world building thing that I thought was very cool and also I guess tied to the plot <laughs> they run in parallel but the fact that you know the conflicts between the Raka and the Luaran ran hand in hand with the um, conflict between the great gods mm-hmm. and not the well um, the goddess and Mithros and yeah. all the tricksters yeah and the way that it was mm-hmm. I mean the way that it was visualized or kind of that it all played out across the sky in different little sparks represented the tricksters and you could see the tide changing through differences in um, these images in the sky was incredibly cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I was a fan. Yeah, no, I, I live for that stuff. The, the, like, god conflict that mirrors the conflict on the ground. It's great. Love it. I guess there's other tricksters around. <laughs> the graveyard hag, I guess, doesn't count as a trickster because she's not aligned. With Caprioth here, she's just doing her own thing. But isn't that the most trickster move of all? The graveyard egg <laughs> is her own thing, and I'm her biggest yeah. fan. <laughs> I mean, I think she's also not not aligned with him. She didn't directly go against his ultimate goal. Yeah, she did trick him. I think she's a trickster. Oh, she is. <laughs> I think she is a trickster. She's just not the trickster. But she's definitely a trickster. Like, yeah. She is that archetype of a god. But yeah, I mean, like, they, they mentioned that the, like, minor tricksters were fighting with Kiprioth, and I wondered if she counted as one of those, but mm. she's she's just doing her own thing. She's her own thing. I love her. Yeah. She's so good. I'm glad she made an appearance. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited for Amy to see her again. <laughs> I mean, rightfully, she should have narrated the book, but... Of course. <laughs> Obviously. That would have been so sassy. She's very sassy. She needs her own book. I did wonder, like, this was a conflict between, like, the trickster, minor tricksters, and then just Mithros and the great goddess? Or were there also other... I think it was only those two, but they're kind of in charge of most things. That's true, but I I, I wonder why the other, like... Uh, lesser gods didn't have a hand in, like, supporting them, because there are plenty of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I wonder if it's partially just that it's, like, a regional conflict for, like, <laughs> mm. the the region that used to belong to Caprioth, and then uh, Mithros and the great goddess, like, took it over. Um, and, yeah, if, the, if they're gods that are, like, more worshipped in other places, they might not want to get involved. That would make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, yeah, the, they're just not that strongly aligned with like the like, the trickster is aligned with the other tricksters, but you know whatever whatever random grain god is not necessarily aligned, <laughs> right? With other grain gods. The... Although I was curious, they kept bringing up the jaguar goddess, and I really would love to know about her. <sighs> yeah, <laughs> there were there were a few throwaway lines in this book about that were very cool world building, where I was just like, please more, and the jaguar go- goddess was one of them. Mm-hmm. But like flame master at the temple was one of them like okay like we apparently we have seen almost no like evidence of the like actual day-to-day worship activities of anyone in these religions like we've interacted with a lot of people who directly interact with their gods (laughs) but like yeah we have no idea how the religions work for the most part yeah they seem to do some like sacrifices or offerings but right then they also have the the flame master thing where they write secrets down and pass them to him to burn i think that's cool what secrets why do they burn them yeah and why don't they put them in the fire directly instead of handing them to a person (laughs) it's like confession sort of except except the guy doesn't know your secret he just like except that he does because he looks at it and tells the king or whatever oh but you don't get to be like this is my secret like 
So there's, I don't know, it doesn't seem like the same thing, but. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a different religion. As long as we're talking about, like, gods and priests, I had another point, which is that I'm very into the fact that in this world where they're doing spy work and also the gods are real, they dress up as priests to facilitate the spy work, but only priests of the most forgiving god. Yeah. And they also (laughs) sacrifice at his temple in advance, just in case. (laughs) Yeah, no, that was... I think a really good detail. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I like the idea. I always like books where people interact with gods and then you see the ways that, like, you know, it's just as interesting that then a lot of times the world building, and here too, the world building is still around, like, religious practices are still important to gods, even though the gods are mm-hmm. kind of like people. Like, they're just like, yeah, we love offerings. They're so cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you don't give me some, I will be mad. Yeah, I mean, the, this book and the um, and Emperor Mage do talk a bit about how, like, gods are at least somewhat sustained by belief in this yeah. world, and they, like, get power from it, so that makes sense. But, yeah, it, it, it's fun to see how, like, if gods are real, how does that affect your day-to-day religious practices? Right, and if gods are real and sustained by belief, it's kind of, like, circular, you know, because it's, like, after Definitely. you see a god, are you really going to be like, oh, I don't believe in him anymore, Um uh, and could you do it just to be petty? Could you be like, I'm really mad about this wheat harvest. I don't believe in you anymore, Greg. <laughs> I mean, isn't that basically Duke Rogers' move? I don't yes. know if he was like, I won't, I don't believe in you, or just like, I'm going to destroy you. But it kind of comes to the same thing. Well, and it's kind of funny, because as far as I kind of understand it, it's not just like, do I believe you exist, but also kind of, do I believe you are important and powerful? Right. Mm-hmm. So, like, you kind of, I think you kind of could. Like, yeah. I think if your wheat harvest failed and everybody was super mad at the grain god, like, <laughs> they could make the grain god less powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, it just wouldn't necessarily do them any good. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Wait, so if Kipriath is a trickster god, yeah. and if people kind of worshipping him and, like, giving him offerings and doing stuff for him gives him power... Do you have to, like, do trickery? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I mean, they did mention that, that he doesn't have priests because no one would want to, like, align themselves with him. Because <laughs> they might get, like, tricked or something. I don't know. What if you were his one priest and you were in, like, a symbiotic relationship that involved you learning a lot of close-up magic tricks? <laughs> <laughs> and, like, giving him more power and then he would help you out? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, you know... Allie is, I mean, she's not, like, she's not his priest, but she is, like, his chosen, you know? And what she does is mostly a lot of lying, so. Yeah, that's a kind of tricky. Yeah, no, I get the impression that the whole idea is that, like, yeah, he doesn't have priests because they couldn't do the things he wants them to do if anyone thought they were his priests. <laughs> uh-huh. So instead, he just has, like, random people who work for him. But and do tricks. No one knows who they are. And do tricks. But and Ali doesn't. She certainly doesn't worship him. She like sasses no. him, but she does yeah. do his yeah. bidding. But that seems to be his like preferred relationship with people, <laughs> yeah. honestly. Because Dub does it too. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> oh, so good. Yeah, that it, that moment when you know when Sarai leaves and um, Kiprioth takes Ali into his realm. Mm-hmm. And even when he's, like, about to end her, she's still talking back. Yeah. <laughs> she can't not sass him. <laughs> she just, I'm like, for your own good here. <laughs> yeah. He is a god, he's not a man. 
Oh, I don't know if this is the right section to mention this in, but um, as long as we're talking about that scene, the necklace that he promised the crows yeah. is oh my so God. funny and good. And the fact that Nala wears it. Yeah. <laughs> Presumably, like, tons of crows are just walking around the Copper Isles wearing it. <laughs> good way to tell that people are crows. Do you think, like, that's story gets out or do you think the entire populace is just why do all of the crows have necklaces now i hope it's that i mean probably when they're still in bird form they don't wear them i hope i think they do but it would be so good if they did i think they're little bird necklaces (laughs) that are just like the ugliest shiniest necklaces yeah and then it becomes like a fable like those stories that are like how the giraffe Mm -hmm. got its long neck but it's like how the the crows got their good fashion. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like how they got their like shiny neck feathers. It's like literally how they got their extremely shiny, ugly necklaces yeah. that every crow wears. Yeah. No, it doesn't like become part of them. They just wear it. <laughs> good. Very Excellent. good. Yeah. That was, it was, that's always one of the highlights in that part of the book for me. Mm-hmm. Right, maybe because it's very, like, tense, it's like everyone's upset, yeah. and then it's just, like, shiny crow necklaces. Yes. Uh, and then she gets to chat with the, the first crows. Yeah. And that's nice. The crows mm-hmm. earned that yeah. necklace. Those oh, necklaces. they totally earned that necklace. Yeah, they worked hard for it. Yeah. Even if some of them deserted and became people. Rude. Cough, not what? Cough. What? <laughs> okay, let's move on. <laughs> uh, let's see. Who has more world building things that they want to talk about? Well, I have a I have a slight linguistics thing. I have a linguistics thing. So it's probably the same linguistics thing. <laughs> Is it military hand sign code? <laughs> yeah, I do have that in quotes. I forgot that showed up here. Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting because I think like we saw code for hand signing in um in some of the books that are actually set in Tortal, but that seemed much more like they were indicating like, oh, like there's an enemy ahead and it's five people or whatever. Yeah. And this one they can just talk in full sentences. I think this is just a sign language that they have. I think it's very definitely a sign language, and I yeah. think the fact that Allie's like, it's definitely military, is just like... Allie not knowing things? Blatantly wrong. Yeah. Well, especially the fact that she mentions it, that, like, she mentions that uh, Yasul uses it, who right. is, like, a mute oh. person. That's how he talks. <laughs> That's just language. No, this was my other question. Like, this is also apparently, like, an international sign language, because Allie was taught it by mm. her dad, and then taught all of these recruits, but Izul, who, as we noted, is mute, also learned it? separately so we could talk to people i mean i think ali knows a lot of languages like ali ali also knows how to speak fluent kipperish from her dad so she might know it not because she's tortolan but true. specifically because her dad taught her a billion languages yeah i mean the likelihood that they would have the same set of signs in multiple countries is seems yeah long. unless it were like a like a luaran import mm. oh but still they that was like hundreds of years ago yeah, it would still have evolved pretty significantly. Yeah, exactly. That would be like a very good parallel to the current hegemony of like ASL in kind of mm. places that have Interesting. Uh, yeah. undergone like colonialism or lots of missionaries. Mm-hmm. Or, um, but yeah, it would have changed significantly, I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. Right. Well, and especially because they're like 
you know, they have to get from one place to another by traveling on ships over the ocean that are propelled by wind. So, like, <laughs> if there's not going to be a lot of, like, signed communication at a distance, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially since it doesn't seem like... Well, I mean, of course, we don't run into any other characters who use this as their primary mode of communication. Yeah, I don't think so. Such that I'm assuming that the community... These communities are probably fairly isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something I'm actually not... I think it's cool that it was included, but I'm a little on the fence about, you know, often when sign languages are included in media, a lot of the time, and this is why, Abby, I mentioned Shape of the Water to you. Oh, yeah. But there was a lot of pushback from the deaf community being like, in media, you often see sign language represented in a way that just where it's like convenient and kind of cool and good for secrets, Mm -hmm. um, but that glosses over its connection to a much wider community that historically hasn't been treated super well both in the media and at a wider level like you know sign languages often come with a very packed loaded socio-historical context and sometimes they're like with shape of the water for example there was some pushback against they're like why didn't you just include a deaf character and then you get all of that right um and so there's often pushback from including someone who's not deaf and kind of you like you're like not cheating, but it's like taking the easy way. You get all the the cool, like cool sign language, but without engaging with any of the right. Well, and even in this, in this, if you just had the mute character who uses it as uh, language, teaching the language to the other people to say like, oh, this would be a cool way for us to communicate our secrets. Like that would be a different story or a, or a different way of representing. Right, it. but you still get the you still get the level where like he signs to someone and then they can just like talk back. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you don't. Um, you don't get, like, full sort of sign language conversations. And you also, like, like there's a level where it's weird for them to be using it for all their spy work because presumably if it's a full sign language that he knows, it's, like, a language that other signers are using that you can't just use as a secret code. Right, so it still definitely has the connotation of, like, what a cool secret code, even though it doesn't make sense. (laughs) Right, and if it were, like, an import that came with the Luarin... They could mm-hmm. just find some people who knew it. Yeah. So, I don't know. I think it's tricky. But. Right. I mean, yeah, like, you'd think that if if it was an import with Luarn, it would make sense for there to be one or more other sign languages, or at least, like, home signs used by the, the like, Raka in, like, villages and stuff, but there, we don't have any evidence of that. And I mean, in the world, usually, <laughs> uh, especially, like, indigenous or, like, yeah. colonized communities usually have a sign language. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's very common to have kind of indigenous sign languages that are completely different from whatever um, sign language has been imported by some sort of colonial power. And that would have been so cool. That would have been really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, imagine, what's the name of that, um, like, Raqqa village near the estate that they were always going to, where Allie was... Yeah, I don't remember. I know what one you're talking about. Yeah, Pahone. Like, what if Pahone had a village sign? That would be so cool. And then you would get, like, you could have, like, you know, Janai and all of, like, you'd have... Because that's the other thing. Then you'd have people who already knew it. Because the other thing that happens in this thing that's pretty common with sign languages, as I've seen them represented in media, is, like, everybody just learns it, like, real easy, real quick. And, like, there's never any Mm -hmm. challenges in communication with it. Which we can tell you. (laughs) Not true. You can't learn a sign language really easy and really quick. Right, because it's a whole language. <laughs> you can take it for years and years and still be pretty bad. 
<laughs> Not that anyone here would have experience. <laughs> no way. Oh, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, but yeah, oh. but if you had like this village that exists that where a lot of these conspirators come from that had a village sign and they knew it, like that would be so cool. That would be really cool. Well, yeah. Yeah. For our next book. <laughs> Sounds good. Not our next book. From in our set of books that we wish could have been written. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so in other fast linguistics news, the Darkings ah, started changing their speech patterns as they were spending more time with Allie. Yeah, which they also did in Dane, right? Or like in Dane, they started speaking. They couldn't speak at the beginning, and then they learned, started to learn. But it's like watching the. It's. I mean, I, this is not the time or the place to go through like how language acquisition processes work with things that have neither vocal uh-huh. cords nor um <laughs> they don't have vocal cords they can just make sounds i mean maybe are they like forming vocal cords or are they just like <laughs> they could that's very plausible but then they'd also have to form lungs yeah but that's fine but the way that i think i mean imagine they're probably learning kiprish right yeah i guess um but watching them slowly acquire the language and correct themselves, it's just like, yeah, aw. That's great. They're cute. Linguistic knowledge from a blob. <laughs> I wish I could acquire languages as well as that blob. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they also learn languages so fast. Good for them. Good for them. I mean, they spend a lot of time with the dragons. Dragons are smart. They yeah. probably just yeah, got the neck for it. Darkings are consistently in their critical period. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's great for them. <laughs> Jealous. Yeah. <laughs> Again, not that anyone here has ever struggled to learn a language. <laughs> All of them. English? Impossible. Oh gosh, imagine teaching them how to sign. They could have little hands. Oh my god, they could form weird little hands. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> okay. Uh. Very we should good. probably be done with linguistics. I think we're done done with linguistics. Also, we've been recording for an hour. <laughs> now, we are going to begin our venture into Social Justice Corner, in which we're going to begin today by talking about feminism and queer sh- stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, wait, so which one are we doing first? Because I have both. The queer one is really short. You guys probably caught it, too. (laughs) Because it was a very short little bit. (laughs) I mean, I'm glad that they mentioned that gay people exist. Yeah. So, yeah, for for our listeners, there is one line (laughs) where the Darkings are listing, like, what they learned while snooping at all the other noble houses. And one thing that they learned is that a daughter in Kadeyet house is kissing her maid. And that's the line. And then Allie's like, that's not important. Moving on. And that's the queer representation in this book. I mean, is that like our second canon gay ever? Is that number two? I think so. Wow. In book 20? (laughs) This isn't book 20. No, it is. is In the Tordal order, it's book 20. We've done. Wait, isn't it like 14? Where's the 20 coming from? Well, maybe that's, like, chronologically. I don't know. I got mm-hmm. it off Goodreads earlier. I yeah. thought if you were If you put the Becca Cooper ones in first, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. it would be 20, I think. Fine. Book whatever. 14, 14. or something. Yeah. <laughs> Too yeah. many. Number two. There she is. The daughter kissing her maid. I guess that's tech- maybe that's two of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> two queers. Daughter and the maid. 
cool. I mean, glad they're there. Wish there was more of them. Glad they're having fun. I think that that family is mentioned as being part of the revolution, so I'm glad they're on the right side. You know, queers for revolution. Seems historically accurate. Obviously. That's who I wish narrated the book. <laughs> yeah, that's her. The daughter <laughs> and the maid. <babe. laughs> I want to know her story. What's her story? <laughs> I would actually love to know her story. Oh, yeah. Uh, all right. So, uh, queer so stuff. So, that's queer stuff. Yep, we did it. <laughs> now we'll move into hashtag feminism. Also yeah. known as hashtag some of the things in this book could have been better. <laughs> some of them. So, yeah, I don't know where we want to start here exactly. Um... I just want to declare right off the bat that I'm Team Sarai. <laughs> Not in terms of, like, she should be queen, but just I support her. <laughs> I support her, too. People should have no right to be telling her what to do. Also, that some of their reactions to her were... Not great. But, like, I don't know. Like, Allie spends... Okay, I think Allie's a bad feminist. <laughs> That's my hot take. She is... I love Allie. Yeah. But she does so much, like, um, judging other people, and especially Sarai... For, like, flirting yeah. and, like, being involved with men. Despite the fact that, like, in this book she thinks, like, oh, in the past I would have flirted and, like, toyed with men's hearts or whatever, but now I don't do that. She does. She does it constantly. <laughs> which isn't a problem. It's fine that she flirts. But how can she do it herself so much and then be like, oh, Sarai is kind of, like, airheaded and boring and cruel because she flirts a lot. What is that about? Also, like, you're with a crow. Like, <laughs> like, can you not get on the judgment train? Sarai passed on the crow, and I feel like she made the right choice. <laughs> yeah, but can you not get all judgy, like, of somebody else who's trying to be with humans? Like, Yeah, yeah, and I don't know, like, someone mentions that, like, Sarai is more interested in her heart than politics, and I don't even think that's true. She's very interested in politics. She, like, really cares about them a lot, but, like, because she also cares about, like, riding and stuff, she gets so much flack. I don't know. And it's definitely interesting that, like, she never really gets asked to join no, the rebellion no. before she runs away. Like, that, like... What's really interesting to me on this reread, I really thought she knew more about it before she ran away. And I was on this read and I was like, so you're judging her for running away in part because she felt like she couldn't do anything. Right. But you never told her that she was the person you were going to put on the throne. Right, exactly. It was so frustrating that she was so much like, um, like so many people in the rebellion and her family and everything were like, how could she do this? It was so thoughtless. She was putting herself ahead of everyone. But what she was actually doing was running away. I mean, yes, yeah, so she could marry the person she was in love with, but also that, so that she wouldn't be used as, like, a prop by an oppressive regime that she thought that no one was challenging. Right. Like, it was very clearly because she thought that there was, like, you know, deep, unchanging racism in her country that she couldn't do anything about. And, like, if they had told her, yeah, we're doing a rebellion and you're going to be part of it. Like, that would be a reason for her to stick around. Right, right. And, like, why not let her know? Like, there's no clear... And then to paint her as almost a villain, like... Or not even a villain, because I don't think it gives her enough agency for her to be a villain. Yeah, just like, oh, she's flighty, she's thoughtless, she doesn't, you know, matter. Yeah, as somebody who, like, yeah, is doing all these things wrong, when you never give her the chance to do what you want her to do, like, that's 
not really fair. And then I think, too, like, we're not hearing Sarai's story. So I think we, like, really can't disregard that she didn't, you know, she has very little agency in the situation. We can't disregard that she's marrying this guy partially to be able to leave her country. Like, right. you know, like, she's in a really tough situation. <laughs> Right, and people people disregard, you know, say that she's, like, not paying attention to politics, and, like, you know, in comparison to Dove, obviously she doesn't, like, figure out the conspiracy herself, and she doesn't, like, pay attention to the grain harvests and that type of thing. But we do, like, we see scenes where she, like, you know, she's hanging out with the young nobles, and, like, there, there's a scene where where all the, the, like, young noble men are, like, we should go out there and fight and, like, put down the Raka. And she, like, manipulates them through, like, social tactics into choosing not to do that, which is, like... You're actually mixing up two scenes. She The time when she manipulated people, it was to keep them from going and breaking out the Duke. Oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. It was from, from keeping them from, yeah, going and trying, attempting to do a prison break that they were not capable of doing. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, I mean, like, I, I still think that she's... Um, like, you know, she's clearly aware of what's going on and, like, you know, using these social strategies and stuff and so, and, and very passionate about the issues and wants to do something. And if they gave her the outlet of participating in the conspiracy, she could probably do a lot. Right. But they're just, they never told her. Right. And, I mean, an important thing is Queen is a big job. Right. Yeah. They also should ask. Yeah. Her autonomy <laughs> is important. Right. Yeah. Like Dove very much went into it willingly, right? Um, and I, I like I don't want to overstate. Like I don't think I don't think this book comes near to making a villain out of Sarai. I think no, I think no, it I don't actually think she's is, a like, villain. Relatively understanding of her choice, right? Um, although there are some people who are not always understanding of that choice, right? Including Allie. I do think they could have done more interesting things with the differences between her and Dove. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking specifically. There's a book that I read this winter that's been on my mind a fair amount in reading books like this since which um is um what truth sounds like by if i get the name right that would be nice uh the book i read was what truth sounds like by um michael eric dyson um which is about racial conflict in america and specifically like the tension one one of the it's a complicated book it's a very interesting book but the tension it covers the tension between um more moderate practical reformers and more radical visionaries Mm -hmm. in social movements um and part of the thesis of the book is that like both are necessary and that tension is inevitable between those poles of any movement but that you need both of them for a movement to work Mm -hmm. um and so it looks at those through a conversation between James Baldwin and Robert F. Kennedy in the 60s, and it's really cool. Um, but in this book, um, I think you could have had a really interesting conversation about that with Sarai as the more radical visionary and Dove as the more practical reformer. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, like, it seemed almost like it was setting that up a little bit, yeah. and I think um, that was in part how she was successfully uh, camouflaging her twist. <laughs> Um, in the earlier books was by setting up this like oh like Sarai's gonna be the like charismatic visionary figurehead and Dove's just gonna be like her counselor yeah advisor um but like I think you could have I think the pivot lost a lot of that 
interesting conversation in just kind of being like, it's just, we just need to be practical about that. this. That's the only way we're going to win. Right, because um, even people who, who, like, understand, like, Allie is relatively supportive of Sarai's choice, partially because she thinks that Dove will actually be a better queen. And, like, I don't know that she's wrong about that. But even Allie, who's relatively supportive of this, is still very dismissive of the fact that, I mean, Allie's a spy, you know, she does sneaking around, that's what she does. But, but pretty much everyone sort of, like, grits their teeth when Sarai, like, speaks out about, like, you know, this country is very racist, but, like, someone has to be speaking out. Like, that's important to do. Right. Right. No, I want to be clear. Like, I think I might have made this a little unclear when I was talking about um, the book. Like, in the book, like, Robert F. Kennedy is not really, like, exactly the modern reformer. Robert F. Kennedy is kind of the problem of a complacent white bureaucracy. <laughs> uh, and... Like, those people also exist in this book, in the mm -hmm. case of, like, the Luaran Conspiracy, who, like, yeah. are maybe well-meaning, but also don't want to give things up. And, like, it could have been really interesting to see how important somebody being able to speak angrily to them could be in that context, while also allowing Dove to be the more practical bridge builder. That could have been so cool. Right. And I really <laughs> like Soraya as someone who's willing to dig in and look at, um, you know, I think that both Dove and Allie tend to talk a little bit more about like the very practical effects of what's going on in an oppressive regime. And Sarai is a lot more willing to look at like systemic oppression and like beliefs that are driving uh, an unequal system. And I think that that kind of gets mm -hmm. you, um, connects to your point, Shelby, about like there are very different ways to view the same problem and a lot of different views are necessary. But I feel like by Allie kind of mm -hmm. taking Sarai's choice to leave and being like, okay, well, next step. <laughs> and like, she's just following her heart and she, you know, she needs to do that or whatever. It kind of disregards the, that there is, yeah, it kind of throws away the dichotomy or the tension that was built up between being like, there are these problems and there are these problems and they both exist and they feed into each other. Right. I mean, uh, I keep coming back to that line about Sarai is more interested in her heart than politics, which I think is, you know, very dismissive of, like, yes, of course she was also in love with a person and eloped with him, but partially the issue is that the way she engaged with politics was in a, an emotional way, but that's not the wrong way to do it, you know, that's how you inspire people. Right. That's, that's also really important, and like, you know, I, I think the Dove is a good leader. I think it matters that she cares about, like, imports and exports and economic background to things and stuff. But I also think it's important to, like, get passionate for the cause, right. you know? And, like, the fact that it seems like they kind of dismiss that. Right. And, like, I'm a big uh, Adrienne Marie Brown fan, and I very much believe that your heart belongs in politics. And, like, mm -hmm. to to separate those is not true or good. And I don't think that's where Tamara Pierce was trying to make a statement, but it's still important for us to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is once again, like, we, I think we can easily overstate the degree to which she's trying to discount that, because in part, I think what she was trying to do was set up a good twist. Um, right, and it is a good twist. Love the twist. Yeah, great twist. Um, and I love Dove as, like, the, the ending queen. Like, I... It was great. Yes. Yeah. Still love that about this book. But I do think there was room for an interesting exploration. And there. I even I like I like the idea that that the the flashy person doesn't ne necessarily make the good ruler. Like I I think that it's great that everyone underestimates Dove as a possible ruler, but she can 
you know, she's extremely capable and smart and can, like, network with these different people and, and make it happen. And that's great. But also, I'm Team Sarai. <laughs> <laughs> I think that she all of her actions are justified and I love her. <laughs> yeah, I just hope she's very happy, you know? Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, probably good that she got married and had a kid because Dove is 13 and doesn't have an heir. Yeah. <laughs> and this this whole problem could happen again in like just a few years. Right, exactly. <laughs> Oy, goodness. Um kind of but not really going off that. Mostly not really. But speaking of uh people's reactions to Dove and Dove's position as a woman in a uh, a place of power and leadership. Mm-hmm. Do you all remember the part in the book where Duke Nomru, kind of our classic, I don't know, I kind of conceptualize him as like a kind of middle-of-the-road little white guy who's very old. Yeah, definitely. Um, and he comes to join their rebellion meeting, and they're talking about how um, Imogene had, uh, like, killed all the mages, and he he's very mad. And he says, oh, that's what happens when you let a woman be in charge. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then everyone's like, yo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, hey. <laughs> are you a part of <laughs> Yeah, I thought there were some really interesting, subtle things that were done with the the white Luaran conspirators who who have a problem with the current regime, but are still sort of very centrist, where, like, they haven't really done anything because they want to be sure to remain in power. They're, like, against the regents, but, like, but, right, they, they don't they don't want, to, like, the rock of rising up or anything. But this is forcing them to pick sides in a... Right, eventually they get they get pushed far enough that they pick a side, but it takes a while. Mm-hmm. And it literally takes one of their own getting arrested. Right. Like... Literally the richest, oldest, whitest man. Um. <laughs> yeah, and even then, they right, like, they don't immediately get it. They have to sort of be brought around and, like, be... It has to be made clear to them that they're not in charge of this movement, um, and that's really interesting stuff to see. Mm-hmm. No, I thought that was a, a clever part of this book. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, the fact that he was the catalyst for that. Yeah, that was a good scene. This is only sort of related, um, and related to, I guess, like, dynamics between the Raka and Luaran. But I thought it was interesting, especially given that the last book had some... This is, I guess this is a little bit getting into race stuff, but I'm just going to say it anyway, because I think we're, we're already kind of there. <laughs> um, in the last book, there was some, some stuff that I did not really enjoy, kind of squeaky for me, about, um, uh, you know, the possibility of Ali, a white, at that point, slave, um, being, like, attacked by the Raka, or, like, especially by Raka men, and that was part of it, and mm. I wasn't into that. Um, this book does sort of bring up the flip side to that, which is they mention a character who is a white or a Luaran noble lady who had a relationship with a Raka man and then claimed that he raped her, which I think is a really, like, that's a much more subtle and real dynamic in terms of, like, how uh, white femininity can be a tool of racism, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. I think the previous book kind of played into that trope by, like, making Allie vulnerable in that way. And this book points out that it is a trope, you know? Right. And has mm-hmm. a character actively using it within this society, which I thought was interesting. Not that we completely abandoned that trope, though, because actually what I thought you were going to bring up was um, Tiber. Tiber? What's-his-face? Yeah. Man. Uh, and his comment to Allie that, you know, he'd help her out. 
if she right. was too oppressed in that very Raka friendly household that is once again let's remember still headed by a white woman yeah (laughs) right and and can we are we are we like fully in race right now because i have a thing that i really want to talk about i i was thinking a lot about why that you know there was still as as shelby mentioned you know like there there was some playing on tropes around race and stuff in this book that i didn't love and there is this household headed by a white woman that's like uh you know supposedly this very raka friendly household um, I was trying to figure out why the race stuff in this book didn't bother me as much, and I realized what it is, which is that I'm pretty sure there's zero mention, other than mention of the fact that Ali is a former slave, I don't think there's any mention of the Balatangs owning slaves. I think that's just not part of it in this book. It's true. I mean, it talks about a lot of times they push back against, like, slavery as a wider thing, you know, when they go and, like, they burn the docks and they, all that stuff, but yeah, they don't talk about it anymore. I mean, I was actually going to bring that up. I didn't know whether slave... I didn't know what section slavery technically fit into. Yeah. Um, All of but them. I didn't actually love that about this right. book, because it did just feel like slavery disappeared in a way where we were just supposed to n- not worry about it. Like, it came up several times, especially when, like, they burned... Like, they messed with the slave markets a few times. But, like, a thing I am still completely unclear on at the end of this book is whether or not the Rocker Rebellion freed the slaves. Right, yeah. Like, it's completely unaddressed. Which, like, could have huh. been a big deal. Big part of this rebellion could have been pretty cool, but... Right, so it's such a weird thing because while I was reading the majority of the book, I was feeling, like, good about it, you know? I was feeling like, like okay, now we're, like, in the rebellion. It's great. Allie's sort of, like, working on the level with these Rocker people. Everything's good. But, like, yeah, once I realized that, like, part of the reason I felt that way is because there's no acknowledgement of the fact that probably even in the Balatang household, some of these people are still right. slaves. And that's, like, not addressed. There's, like, one conversation that Allie has with Dove where, like, Allie's like, hey, you should consider freeing the slaves once you're queen. And Dove's like, but the economics of it, mm. they'll be so hard. <laughs> Um, and then it's, like, not addressed again, so we don't know what they did. Right. Which, like, cool, is a lot like the way that we, uh, a lot of people are able to operate ignoring the labor practices that hold up our society. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's so much easier to, to sort of think of, like, Winamine and Nomru as sympathetic characters when you don't think about the fact that they are almost certainly slave owners. Right. Not even almost. Completely. Yeah, they, they are slave owners, yeah. And yeah, that's that's pretty rough. I was I couldn't remember if um do we remember if when Karthak got overthrown in the Dane books, did they free their slaves? Or was that another like, you should think about it. <laughs> Have you considered freeing your slaves sometime in the future? Well, I mean, because Dane was really unhappy about it, but Kadar didn't care yeah. Yeah. that much. I mean, but I think he he did sort of say, like, I will think about it, and then by this yeah. book it's twelve years in the future, so the oh, big yeah. question is like, did he do it? Yeah. Dunno. I think the answer is no, because yeah. actually, I think we know that the answer is no, because I think they talk in this book about shipping oh, yeah. some oh. of the people who are taken as slaves in the rebellion to Karthik, and then they have to, like, you know, do a whole bunch of stuff to, like, prevent the ships from leaving. Right. Mm-hmm. So they must not have. They're still buying them from the Isles. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, um. like, in, in the Copper Isles, obviously, slavery is a more racialized thing than it is in Karthak. Like, it's not 100%. But, like, they mentioned in this book that it's legal to sell anyone with Raqqa blood into slavery, including nobles, if they commit a crime. So, like, it's it's a very, it's a not 
100% on race lines, but it is very, like, racialized, mm-hmm. so it seems hard to imagine this society moving forward and still having slaves in it. Yeah, and I mean, do, yeah. you, do you all remember that line? They were talking with, uh, Allie was talking with a guardman after they did something, and he was talking about how slavery had been present for a very, very long time in the Isles, even before the Luaran yeah, came. Yeah, even before but the Luaran came. When the Luaran came, it was very much used as a tool by the Luaran as a... Mm-hmm. Uh, form of kind, mm-hmm. this kind of uh, racialized oppression. Yeah. Um, yeah, I liked that. Because that is a very common pattern throughout mm-hmm. history of, like, slavery will exist, but then colonizers come in and make it significantly worse as a way to keep the populace in line. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that that felt like a very historically real pattern. Mm-hmm. And I, wow, I just wish this book had addressed slavery more rather than dropping it as a plotline once Allie was no longer a slave. Like, the Balatangs didn't free every slave in their household. They just freed her. Right. But she doesn't care about the other She's ones. She's like, okay, great. Wait, isn't, isn't Chenow still a slave? Isn't she a slave? Wait, who? Somebody in the rebellion's a slave. Yeah, isn't well, there it? was a, there was the, Chanel, Ch- uh, uh, the guy in the previous book, Lokish, him, he was a slave, but he died. I don't know if any of the other ringleaders of the rebellion were slaves. Right. It was him I was thinking of. Yeah. But, okay. like, 100% there are other slaves in the Balatang household. And presumably most yeah. of them are part of the rebellion. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Those noises, those are our feelings about this. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's... So is that maybe a good pausing point? Yeah. yeah. Right, we have more race stuff to talk about, probably, but we can do it in the next episode. Okay, so so we're gonna, for the moment, wrap up. We're not completely wrapped, or even close to completely wrapping up Social Justice Corner, but for now, we're gonna move into... Palace Gossip. Palace Gossip. So, we got a good email from... Ooh, I don't know if we can say this person's name. We got a good mail from someone. A listener. You know who you are. <laughs> Uh, and it's a Trickster's Linguistics mail, so this is responding to Ooh. our first Trickster's Ooh. Choice episode, and this is a very fast linguistics about the word Luaran, and Luaran apparently is from Bahasa, Indonesia, which is the language spoken in Indonesia, one of many, and it the word Luaran means outside or outdoors. Huh. Um so the root is, um, this person pointed out that it's relevant to the, maybe the meaning of outsiders or something like yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. But, which is very cool. And this person also pointed out that in our first episode, uh, this person said that we made a point that Trickster's Indonesia seems more subtle than Egypt's Karthak. And uh, in the email, they said, I would argue that this might be because we're more familiar with Egypt than Indonesia. Um, because in the U.S. we have this weird fixation on ancient Egypt, especially as kids. And so maybe um, part of that has shaped our conceptualizations as to why we don't have quite as clear a picture. That could definitely I mean, I would strongly agree with that because I think I think Karthik is not nearly as strong of an Egypt corollary as this is an Indonesia corollary. Like, it is, we've already discussed, like, also partially the Roman Empire. Yeah. I will say, like, I think they're absolutely right that, like, it took me a while growing up as a kid to figure out that this was Indonesia. Like, I think as a kid, I didn't know much about Indonesia. I was like, mm, Philippines? Right. <laughs> it's, it's definitely over there. But, yeah. like, I didn't know. Um, but, but yeah, I think... And, and while I was looking for one specific ask that Tamara Pierce had on her <laughs> Tumblr for a very long time today, um, I did encounter her specifically talking about how 
um, she drew from a bunch of different Indonesian cultures oh. to hmm. write, um, whatchamacallit, this book. This book. Um, right. So yes, yeah. that was a great point. Person who you right. know who you are. I, yeah, I don't, I love a, I love an etymology. I don't know how I feel about her just, like, directly taking words from yeah. languages. Right. Yeah, and I also but, like the idea of drawing from a bunch of different cultures from one place is always kind of uh, like, eh, to me. Like, yeah. but I'm not the right person to dissect it. Yeah. Yeah, what I would say about that, which I also won't say too much because it's not my place, but I think what's maybe a problem more than her just taking from a bunch of different cultures is the fact that we see no evidence of cultural diversity within the Copper Isles, yeah. which must exist. I think that's mm-hmm. what I'm trying to get to, like, like the idea that white cultures are diverse and then all other cultures are monocultures is, like, very yeah. bad <laughs> and not true. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's some other weird stuff of, about how she's created this culture that we will probably get into in the next episode, yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah, but I, I do, I always like a good etymology point because I think it shows us a lot about what the thought behind creating a character is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Great point. Awesome. Love the linguistics. <laughs> yes. So with that, I believe... We don't do anything else at the end of this particular episode. Oh, you say where they can find us. Oh, <laughs> thanks, friends. So, uh, you, if you would like, can find us. Well, our podcast, you can find most anywhere you can download podcasts. But otherwise, uh, if you want to engage with us further, you can find us on Twitter at Tortal Recall, on Tumblr at Tortal Recall. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, uh, we have a, a website, uh, tortalrecall.com. That is correct. And I want to I want to mention because we haven't mentioned it for a while that um, we don't have complete transcripts of our show, but we are we are working on transcripts. I think we currently have the first thirteen on our website. Um, that could be wrong, but we at least have most of the first thirteen. So if you know someone who would benefit from having transcripts from this podcast. Uh, we have at least some of them, and you should check those out. Yes. Oh, we also have a Patreon. It's Patreon, Tortal Recall. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, we should mention that because we, we reference Tortal Recall Recall a lot in this episode. <laughs> That's our Patreon show that we do where you can hear people who weren't on the main episode from the month also have opinions about the book. And sometimes mm-hmm. other things. A wide variety of other things. But, really just a lot of opinions. But we are getting to the point where there's like a, quite a backlog of bonus episodes, so if you ever miss mm-hmm. us during the indeterminate gaps between when we upload... <laughs> That's where you can find us. That's where yeah. you can hear more. It's fun. Um, yeah, but otherwise, I think that's all for now. Our music is Greensleeves by Zeta. Thanks, Zeta. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Thank you to our patrons and people who have interacted with us on social media also. We're not currently, like, reading your names, but we still love you a lot. So thank love you. you. Yeah. <laughs>
Um, cool. Who wants to do the sign off? <laughs> no! I haven't played this game in ages. <laughs> Rude. We just played Nose Ghost. Um, so, see you, Tortellini. <laughs>